It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Total knee replacements, TKR, continues to create consternation among the nation's facilities. We'll have two reports. Joining us later in the broadcast is going to be the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. Also reporting on how his facility approaches admitting patients for total knee replacements will be Dr. Jeffrey Pinger. He's the Senior Advisor at St. Elizabeth Healthcare in Edgewood, Kentucky. Also on the rundown, a newcomer to this broadcast, Barry Lynn Jill Gomez. She's going to connect the dots on TKR with her report on prior authorization transactions. Healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley has all the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listeners survey. Well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ron LaHerse, who has a developing surgery report while making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. I've got a few stories today. First, you remember last week I told you about how one of the Macs wanted medical records faxed from different fax machines and how the first page of the fax was not allowed to have a HIPAA waiver? Well, I received confirmation that this Mac does not think HIPAA applies to them. Rebecca, a RAC coordinator at a hospital in that jurisdiction, informed me that her facility received four denial letters from that MAC, three for her hospital and one from some random hospital. So much for protected health information. Now on to more important stuff. CMS has just released a final decision memo on changes to the national coverage determination for implantable cardioverters defibrillators, also known as ICDs. While CMS states that there are only relatively minimal changes, I don't agree. Some are quite substantive. For example, every patient receiving an ICD for primary prevention will be required to have an encounter for shared decision-making using an evidence-based tool. Now, if you're looking for shared decision-making tools, you need go no further than my webpage, ronaldhirsch.com, where I just added references. On the plus side, the requirement for participation in the data registry has been removed. There are also several changes to the indications. So if your hospital places ICDs, go to the handout tab right now and download the memo from CMS. But here's the scary part. When I contacted CMS about the effective date of these changes, I was told it was immediate. I did explain that implementing a procedure to ensure that shared decision-making is performed cannot happen overnight, so they're going to take this back to the lead analyst and determine if a grace period can be implemented, but no guarantees. The second news item is an interesting OIG audit. While we're used to talking about audits of hospitals, this time the OIG audited a MAC, WPS, and their payments for hyperbaric oxygen treatments. In this audit, the OIG audited 120 claims from 2013 to 2014 and found that 108 were improperly paid. While an 85% error rate is pretty high, the real eye-opener on this audit was that the OIG extrapolated the $300,000 overpayment to a potential $42 million in overpayments. They then told WPS to go to every provider of hyperbaric oxygen in their jurisdiction during those two years and instruct the providers to, quote, 
investigate and return any identified overpayments within the 60-day rule and track any returned overpayments. The OIG also told WPS to go back and audit claims they paid since 2014. So if you were in the WPS jurisdiction in those years, expect to receive a letter with instructions on performing an audit of your past claims. And if any of you offer hyperbaric oxygen, you may want to look at this audit. Your MAC may be next. This OIG report is also on the handout tab. Finally, we're going to be hearing from two guests about how they handle the status decisions for total knee replacements in Medicare patients. I've put some useful resources, including a link to my Rack Monitor webinar on my website. I'm really excited to hear what they say, as long as it agrees with my opinion. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And by the way, you can read uh, Dr. Hirsch's reporting on this major change in the special bulletin. It's going to be coming your way tomorrow from Rack Monitor. And now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And first of all, on the therapy cap, status quo, no further instructions from CMS on when we add the KX modifier, but we no longer have a therapy cap. My segment this morning on hot news has to do with a whistleblower complaint that was announced in your jurisdiction, Chuck. Scripps Health to pay $1.5 million to settle claims for services rendered by unauthorized physical therapists. So according to the Department of Justice press release, that Scripps Health is going to pay $1.5 million to resolve allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by charging for physical therapists who didn't have billing privileges or were not properly supervised. And according to the complaint, um, while at Scripps, the particular relator learned of what she called widespread violations of Medicare's so-called Incident 2 rules governing clinical treatment. And under these rules, a physician must be present when a service is billed incident to his or her own care, and in such cases, the provider is permitted to bill for the service under his or her own Medicare provider number and certification. If the physician is not present, then in order for the services to be reimbursable, they must be submitted under the provider number of the provider who actually provided the service. It was determined, based upon the relator's allegation, that as a matter of policy, Scripps required only that physicians be available by telephone. That would be general supervision rather than on-site. So all physical therapy services were billed as incident to the physician services, regardless of the physician's presence in the building. So I'm going to stop there. And David Glazer is going to pick this up under his risky business segment. But I'm going to tell you if you're a physical therapist working in a physician's practice or a physician, uh, physical therapy practice that's providing MSA services to a physician practice, take a look at this case and ensure that your risk assessment and your auditing and monitoring plan takes into account the risks that are presented here. So, Emily, can you please bring up our poll this morning? And I want to thank Dr. Ron Hirsch for assisting me with the poll this morning on uh, TKA. So how is your facility handling admission status on Medicare total knee replacements? Check number one, 
If your facility is inpatient only for patients with a documented expectation of two midnights, check number two, if inpatient allowed for one midnight patients at higher risk using a case-by-case exception or who needs SNF. Number three, you're admitting all as inpatient, then post-discharge self-denying any low-risk one-day inpatients. And if it's not applicable to you, please indicate as such. I'm excited given our topic to see the results of this poll. Thanks, Nancy. We're excited, too. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the President and CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates, and as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in the broadcast. And coming up in about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Betty Lingles, Gomez, Dr. Jeffrey Pilger, and our special guest, the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. This is Monday, it's February the 19th, 2018, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Privacy and compliance professionals need to know what's on the horizon related to the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights Enforcement Activities. By reviewing lessons learned from recent OCR HIPAA audit and other enforcement activities and proactively developing best practices, You can prepare for the future and be equipped with the tools to safeguard your organization from privacy and security threats. Rita Bowen is a nationally recognized healthcare privacy expert. She'll report on the latest initiatives by the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights during an important webcast tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. You'll receive guidance on how to prepare your organization for future OCR enforcement activities. To attend, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800 252 1578, extension 2. Standing by is our special guest, the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. She's going to report on total knee replacement. Also joining the conversation will be Dr. Jeffrey Pilger. He's going to report on how his facility is handling total knee replacements. Now we check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who is reporting some risky business. David, what is risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So as Nancy mentioned, Scripps Hospital paid $1.5 million to resolve a False Claims Act case. There are a bunch of lessons in, from both the complaint and the settlement, some applicable to physical therapy and some generally to looking at complaints. So first, when a False Claims Act is originally announced or settled, people often turn to the complaint which is really the first document filed by a relator or whistleblower in court and contains the allegations of wrongdoing. Now, it's easy to assume that when a case settles, the information in the complaint must have been at least a little bit true. That's a bad assumption. Even ignoring the fact that parties to a lawsuit sometimes settle for convenience, even when the allegations are false, there's a less obvious point. If the government identifies another problem through its investigation, a settlement might involve new problems while the issues identified in the complaint are found to be baseless. The closest you can come to finding out what really prompted a settlement is to find the settlement agreement and look for what's in there as the covered conduct. The money paid to the government is for this covered conduct, and only those actions are going to be released from further claims. So this particular settlement involves services by uncredentialed therapists. Medicare allows you to use an uncredentialed therapist when the services are provided incident to a physician. Uh, But in this case, they were not. A couple of interesting twists. So first, Scribs has self-reported the conduct and done a refund to the contractor, but a whistleblower had already filed a lawsuit. 
The publicly available documents don't make it clear how much of this settlement was just a refund of the overpayment and how much of it was penalties. Now, another interesting tidbit, Scripps issued a statement indicating that a physician was always on site, which strongly suggests to me that the issue was that the physical therapists who were not credentialed were seeing new patients without physician involvement. But we don't know from for sure what's going on. So really, it's just helpful to think about what all of the relevant rules are. Now, I will add, personally, I am not a big fan of billing physical therapy incident to a physician. There's almost no upside. The only benefit I see is that under Stark, a group practice can credit physicians for incident to services. But in my mind, that small benefit isn't worth the risk. Given that reimbursement is identical for physical therapy that's supervised by physician or provided directly by therapists, billing under the therapist's number is generally the way to go. Then you can take outside referrals, avoid the physician supervision requirement, and basically have fewer obligations. Um, a final point, the Medicare billing rules aren't the only consideration. Don't forget your state licensure rules, Medicaid, and your private insurance rules. It's what keeps us uh, lawyers and consultants gainfully employed. I'd like to close by inviting you to participate in a Rack Monitor webinar on March 1st. So this webinar could literally save your organization hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. If you or anyone in your organization think that you have a duty to refund when there's missing documentation or an unsigned chart, you'll be glad you listened. Well, you've heard me say, if it isn't written, it isn't done, isn't the law, over and over. This will explain why. You can look under the uh, handouts tab for the brochure. So Chuck, one of the lessons from the Scripps case is that when you want to build physical therapy incident two, the therapists better have a very good relationship with Rockwell and feel like somebody's always watching them. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in a law firm at Fredericton and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Joining us now to connect the dots between total knee replacement and payers is Betty Lingle Gomez. Betty is reporting on a recent survey conducted by the Healthcare Administrative Technology Association. That survey was to understand how to remove the barriers to the adoption of prior authorization transactions. Good morning, Betty. Welcome to the broadcast. Tell us a little bit about how this survey works and how it connects with TKRs. Good morning as well. I'm happy to be here reporting today on behalf of HADA, which is the Healthcare Administrative Technology Association. They are a national organization representing the practice management system industry. Now, HADA was formed in 2014 and it has 33 members consisting of practice management systems, supporting technology vendors and associations. In 2016, HADA created the prior authorization workgroup this is part of our strategic plan to gain an understanding, to be able to do research and remove any possibility of practice management vendors as barriers to a streamlined electronic prior authorization workflow. The work group comprised of members such as Medinformatics, Alphop2, Optum, NextGen, Almeds, Availity, Cognizant, Practice Admin, AMA, and MGMA surveyed our members to understand the current utilization within our membership world the barriers to a meaningful workflow within the practice, and especially how value-based payments might impact prior authorization. So the survey results revealed some interesting facts. 
33% offer the 278 transactions, which is the prior authorization, to their providers. The most interesting aspect, though, is that of those clients utilizing the 278, 100% of them are using it for referrals only, not prior authorization. So what are some of the barriers that we identified? Well, 63% of our respondents indicated there was a lack of provider interest. And another 63% indicated, no, it's a lack of payer commitment. So we have those two groups, right? There were some development limitations, some unreliable information exchange, and a minor 12% interoperability challenges. The biggest comment that we got, though, was general industry lack of understanding due to non-use and implementation. 200, the 278 usage is only 1% to 10% of clients currently use, utilizing that transaction. So HALA is working with Availity and other clearinghouses to get a better handle on the current levels of, of adoption and or barriers. There's a payer initiative because we have both sides with Blue Shield of Florida, Edna, Cigna, United Healthcare, and Humana. We have ongoing communication with them to identify levels of adoption and or barriers and pain points from the payer perspective. So HADA for longer term wants to create a white paper so we can foster education to both of these groups so that there is more implementation and adoption. We need to explore the provider demand. We need to understand what they need to utilize the transaction for more than just a referral and collaborate with other industry stakeholders. Providers rely heavily on prior ops to provide services and effectively collect money. The reason why the prior ops is so cumbersome is because it's a manual process, and there's too many variations from payer to payer, like phone, fax, or portal. The different response times affects how quickly a patient can be seen, and providers must adjust and know all the different payer rules. Most practices compile what they call payers' Bible rules, and as vendors, Medinformatics, can automate those rules, but if the industry adopts the standard, then practice management software vendors can automate and streamline the workflow process. Payer participation will allow vendors to drastically improve the workflow, which will in turn allow for more timely care and better care for the patient, which will conduce to greater patient satisfaction, which is what we all want. Now, a standard prior off can help practices understand the payer requirements around total knee replacement. And, and therefore increase any patient satisfaction. But currently, it's too confusing because it's a manual process. So we really would like the industry to adopt, and we wish that CMS would provide us with the attachments regulation standard. That will really help us get us there sooner. So, uh, Chuck, uh, it's really important that we understand prior off because it will provide so much more information and provide better care for our patients more timely, and it will provide uh, incentive for the practices because they will get paid accordingly. So thank you, and this is my report today. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Betty, very much. That was Betty Lingle Gomez. Betty is the Industry Relations and Regulatory Compliance Director for Med Informatics. Our lead story this morning is about the consternation associated with total knee replacements, TKR, as you heard us describe. We have two reports, and we begin this morning with Dr. Jeffrey Pilger. Dr. Pilger is a senior physician advisor at St. Elizabeth Health in Edgewood, Kentucky. Good morning, Dr. Pilger. 
Welcome to the program. How does your facility approach admitting of Medicare beneficiaries for TKRs? Good morning, everyone. In 2017, St. Elizabeth Healthcare performed 543 total knee replacements on traditional Medicare patients. News that this procedure would be taken off the inpatient-only list certainly was a concern, but after analyzing the language in the final rule, not so much. We felt it was clear that CMS was not expecting a significant number of these cases to transition to outpatient, that the two-midnight rule remained in effect unless the physician felt the inpatient admission was warranted due to other factors such as comorbidities, and it was expected that providers would develop evidence-based guidelines concerning who is and who is not appropriate for outpatient total knee replacements. Due to BPCI, we are fortunate to have an engaged orthopedic group. Some of them were already doing outpatient total knee replacements on some non-Medicare patients. They had already developed some inclusion-exclusion criteria focused on comorbidities and ASA scores. So we came to the consensus on the following. Patients with ASA scores of less than three with the expectation of less than two midnights should be considered outpatient, and those patients with an ASA score of three or greater in general would be admitted as inpatient even if the expectation was less than two midnights. Documentation, of course, is the key and will be the most difficult obstacle to overcome. We have assisted the orthopedic surgeons in developing smart phrases in our electronic health record, improving uh, appropriate documentation of medical necessity. This continues to be a work in progress. Furthermore, all traditional Medicare total knee replacements are reviewed daily preoperatively by our physician advisors, looking at ASA scores, comorbidities, and anticipation of length of stay. If there are concerns about appropriate status or lack of documentation that supports medical necessity, this will be addressed with the orthopedic surgeon before the patient is discharged, usually on the day of surgery. So as of to date, in 2018, we have performed 45 total knee replacements on traditional Medicare patients. Of those, 13, or 29%, had a one-day stay. Of those 13, five were performed as an outpatient, and eight were performed as inpatient. So currently, only 11% of our traditional Medicare total knee replacements were performed as outpatient. We think 11% is a reasonable number, as CMS has made it clear. We do not expect a significant volume of TKA cases currently being performed in the hospital inpatient setting to shift to the hospital outpatient setting as a result of removing this procedure from the IPO list. If we took the stance that all one-day stays equal outpatient without considering other factors detailed in the 2018 OPPS final rule, then our outpatient volume would increase significantly to almost 30%. We do not currently, we do not think currently that is the goal of CMS based on our interpretation of the language in the final rule. We would consider a shift of 30% to outpatient a significant volume. How we deal with total knee replacements continues to be a work in progress and is not yet perfect, but we think CMS has given you a window of opportunity of at least 18 months to figure it out. Remember, despite, despite being taken off the IPO list, Total knee replacements are still considered major orthopedic surgery, especially in our Medicare population. I will end with this quote from CMS. We would not want hospitals to err on the side of inappropriately performing the procedure on an outpatient basis 
due to concerns about the possibility of an inpatient total knee replacement claim being denied for patient status. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Dr. Pilger. That was Dr. Jeffrey Pilger. Dr. Pilger is the lead physician and advisor at St. Elizabeth Health in Edgewood, Kentucky. Thank you very much for a very interesting report. We continue with our reporting on TKR, and here now is our special guest, Mary Beth Pace. Good morning, Mary Beth. Welcome to the program. How does Trinity Health handle TKRs? Thank you, Chuck. First, I need to thank all of the Trinity Health team that's working on this. This is I happen to be the probably the loudest voice, but we've got a, a quite a few people working on how is what is Trinity Health's um, way that they're going to follow this, right? So I want to start with the fact that CMS presents this list, the inpatient-only list, in the OPPS rule. So the way I look at it and the way I've tried to educate people is the inpatient-only list is really an outpatient-never list. So those patients automatically have to be done inpatient in order for the hospitals to capture a bill and bill them. That doesn't mean that patients come in for a total knee replacement now should be outpatient only. It just means that you've got that opportunity, right? So we've done a few of the same things that Dr. Pilger did. Um, What we are working on, though, is exclusion criteria, right? So we are looking for what would exclude them from having their procedure in an outpatient setting. Um, trying to stay with that outpatient never or outpatient never idea, trying to exclude them from whatever it is they're doing in an outpatient setting. Some of that is um, things that I've seen from other people, right? Um, history of smoking, BMI, um, comorbid conditions, right? Do they have COPD, heart failure? Um, do they have a um, major cardiac history? Things like that. So, um, But I would liken this to the reason that we're having the challenge we're having, and we are having a challenge uh, across our organization. Some of the teams just automatically started scheduling everybody for outpatients starting January 1, even if they were going to stay. We do abide by the CMS to Midnight Rule for our inpatients, but we also need to look at the documentation, and I think Dr. Pilger said that very well. And um, a shout-out to Ron Hirsch because he's helped us present to our orthopedic physicians on what that should look like, so appreciate that. And I liken this to being risk-averse for the RAC monitor, so I appreciate RAC audits. So I appreciate the 18 months to figure it out, but I only know that the RAC auditors cannot touch our, our charts for 18 months. Our teams are a little bit more in that um, uh, the thoughts of, well, the max, that does not mean the max can't come in and, and pull some charts and do education. And I'm using air quotes when I say education because we all know that max education is usually um, pull back, pulling back money and sometimes potentially extrapolating in terms of that. So we have to be careful, and we certainly don't want the OIG walking in. So ultimately, our goal from uh, Trinity Health is to take each case as a case-by-case basis, check what those exclusion criteria are, and actually schedule the patient appropriately. And then let me speak for just a second about these poor patients, right? 
So now in the physician's office, before January 1st, they could say, we're going to have your, you have to have your surgery done. You're going to go to the hospital on X day, and you are going to be responsible for your, whatever your hospital copay is. Now we have to talk to them about, you're going to have your surgery done. You're going to go to the hospital on X day, and we really don't know what your hospital copay is going to be yet because we don't know if this is going to be inpatient. We don't know if this is going to be outpatient. Go ahead and pack a bag and take, make sure you've taken responsibility for your um, animals and your plants, but we really won't know until you get there and we do the surgery whether or not you're going to stay with us overnight or whether you're going to stay two days or three days. And oh, by the way, if you do need a skilled nursing facility, we've got to talk about that after you have your surgery too. So I think, um, unfortunately, CMS has really kind of thrown um, quite a quite a wrench into our um, patient care. And I know they're responsible for beneficiaries, but sometimes I think that they look at the beneficiary pocketbook and don't think about the beneficiary's world. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Mary Beth, very, very much for a very enlightening uh, presentation on how Trinity Health handles TKRs. Nancy, let's take a look at our survey results in a couple of minutes remaining. Chuck, I think this is going to be a topic that we're going to be covering throughout the year, the total knee replacement. Um, First of all, on our poll this morning, 40% of our listeners are admitting patients inpatient only for patients with a documented expectation of two midnights. 25% are admitting inpatient allowed for one midnight patients that are at higher risk using a case-by-case exception or who need the skilled nursing facility benefit. And 4% of our listeners this morning are saying all are inpatient and then post-discharge self-denying any low-risk one-day inpatients. And I think the topic of self-denying is an upcoming topic that we should have with Dr. Hirsch. Very good, Nancy. Thanks very much for those survey results. Thank you all for participating in the survey. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to answer all the questions that came in on today's subject. We're going to make every effort to answer those questions offline. We'll probably be conducting a webcast coming up in the very near future on this subject. So that's going to be a wrap for us, and we thank you for being with us, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Betty Lingle Gomez, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Dr. Jeffrey Pilger. Thank you again, Dr. Pilger, for being on our program. And our special guest, the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Faith. Thanks again, Mary Beth. And we thank you for being with us this morning. We look forward to you returning next Monday for another edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Iraq Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.